every family has its secrets. A child who hides evidence that they failed a math test. Spouses who put on brave faces so no one knows they're considering a divorce. Affairs that never come to light. These unspoken truths can be upsetting or destabilizing, but it's rare for a secret to have national security implications. That was the case for Charlotte Mann, but she never realized how serious her family's unspoken truths could be. From what we can tell, she didn't even know what the secret was. For years, her grandmother, Floyd, occasionally mentioned a mysterious plane crash outside of town. Somehow, Floyd's husband, Charlotte's grandfather, William, was related to the wreck, and it all tied back to aliens. Although Charlotte knew the broad strokes of the story, no one ever told her how the pieces fit together. That is, until 1984, when Floyd was in the final stages of cancer. Charlotte begged her grandmother to describe what happened to Grandpa William in 1941. Otherwise, the tale would be lost forever. Floyd finally gave in and laid out a wild story, one featuring downed UFOs, alien bodies, and a government conspiracy. It was more than a collection of family lore and half-remembered gossip. This family's secret would later be corroborated with official memos and declassified reports. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our only episode on Cape Girardeau. In spring 1941, a mysterious aircraft reportedly crashed in rural Missouri. Dozens were called to the scene, including Reverend William Huffman. He claimed the government made him swear never to reveal what he saw. Today, we'll investigate what happened that night. Though Huffman never shared his story with the press, his wife told the tale to their granddaughter decades later. The narrative featured a crashed flying saucer and three alien bodies that may have ended up buried beneath one of the U.S.'s most treasured institutions. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When Reverend William Huffman moved to Cape Girardeau, Missouri in 1940, he expected a quiet life. 
His job was to fundraise and increase church attendance. As a man of faith, it must have seemed like important work, but low-key. He likely never expected to find himself at the heart of a government conspiracy. One night in April 1941, William helped his wife clean up dinner. His adult son was visiting with his spouse. They were eagerly expecting their first child. They and William's younger adult son helped the house feel full and complete. Then, as the family settled in for what they expected to be a quiet night, the phone rang. It was around 9 o'clock, definitely late for a chat. William's family fell silent as the caller introduced himself as someone from the police department. He sounded somber and a bit shaken up while he explained there'd been a horrible accident outside of town. A plane had crashed. The police wanted the reverend to administer the sacrament of last rites. This is a prayer a Catholic priest says over a dying person. Even though William wasn't Catholic, he agreed to tend to the dying anyway. He hung up and got ready in silence. A few minutes later, there was a knock at the door. A plainclothes police officer stood on the front porch, waiting to take William to the site of the crash. As for what happened after William got in the car, all we have to go by are rumors and secondhand accounts. So for the rest of this tale, we're going to rely on the unverified version of the story William allegedly told Floyd, which she later recounted to her granddaughter. A retelling of her testimony was then published in M.O. 41, The Bombshell Before Roswell by Paul Blake Smith. We relied on his research throughout this episode. As the tale goes, they sped across dark dirt roads. The only illumination came from the car's headlights. For roughly 30 minutes, they drove to the middle of nowhere. Finally, they parked but they weren't at their destination yet. William and the officer had to walk for a while. He later estimated the crash site was about a quarter mile off the road. As they drew closer, William saw the flames and smoke rising, illuminating a nearby farmhouse. A police car and fire truck were parked near the wreck, as well as a few other civilian vehicles. First responders swarmed over the site. This was it. He and the officer hurried toward the flames. Mangled metal dotted the field around a strange, downed ship. Official-looking men in suits and ties took notes and measurements. Some swept flashlights over the wreckage. A group of firefighters were gathered around a small clump on the ground. It had two arms and two legs, a head, a body. But this was no human. It was an alien. The creature couldn't have been more than four feet tall. Once William spotted the being, he soon found two other figures that looked just like the first. All three seemed to be covered in something crinkly and shiny, like aluminum foil. It was impossible to say if it was some kind of spacesuit or their skin. And somehow, despite the crash... All the bodies were unscathed. Two of the victims lay completely motionless. William figured they were dead, but the third seemed like it was struggling to breathe. 
The Reverend didn't believe it had much life left, and he wanted to comfort the dying creature. He bent down in the wet grass, leaned over the poor gray figure, and began to pray. Meanwhile, the creature gasped for breath, as though it couldn't survive in Earth's oxygen-rich atmosphere. Finally, the dying creature stilled. William knew it was dead. Now that it was at peace, the clergyman prayed over the other two dead figures. In William's mind, they were all God's creatures, even if they came from the other side of the galaxy. After he tended to the bodies, it's possible William shook off a chill. Something about the scene wasn't right. That is, something besides the alien remains. The same thought must have been on the minds of everyone who witnessed the crash site that night. What had caused the accident? The skies were clear and calm. There was no storm, no passing plane that could have collided with the craft. The field where it hit the ground was flat and empty. William approached the downed ship and gave it a once-over, but the wreckage didn't hold any answers either. It was smooth, flat, and circular. The vehicle looked like an enormous dish, what we would describe now as a flying saucer. The Reverend saw no scorch marks. One portion of it looked like it had been ripped apart, but William couldn't tell what had caused the damage. He couldn't even find the seams that held the metallic pieces together. He also couldn't spot any propellers or wings. It had no symbols or markings of any kind. No luggage strewn across the ground, no paperwork. Nothing he'd expect to find in a flying craft. William had never seen anything like it. While he was near the saucer, William glanced inside the opening, making him one of the only human beings to ever see the inside of an alien spaceship. Like the exterior, the interior seemed perfectly smooth, aside from some small gauges and dials. No screws, rivets, nuts, or bolts. There were three small metal seats, each just large enough for a child and the walls were covered with strange symbols that looked like Egyptian hieroglyphics. It's possible William wanted to take a closer look, but he'd barely glanced at the largest section when bright lights illuminated the sky outside. He stepped out as something approached from the distance. Everyone turned. Within seconds, multiple cars and trucks surrounded the crash site. Armed men in U.S. Army uniforms leapt out, followed by stern-looking officials in suits. One ordered everyone to back away from the saucer and the bodies. He barked that this was a matter of national security. The military men made sure no one had picked up any physical evidence. They wouldn't let anyone walk away with any proof of the extraterrestrial crash. William didn't have anything incriminating in his pockets. Still, before he could leave, one of the officials pulled him and some other witnesses behind the farmhouse. He gave them a firm warning. Quote, This didn't happen. You didn't see this. This is national security. It is never to be talked about again. He wrapped up by saying William couldn't tell a soul what he'd witnessed tonight. Not a soul. The Reverend agreed immediately. Minutes later, William and the police officer climbed back into the car and drove home. 
Military vehicles and dark cars zipped past them, headed toward the saucer. Once the driver dropped him off, William trudged up the steps and into his living room, unsure what he would tell his wife. Floyd was still up and waiting for him, and when William got home, his two adult sons joined their parents in the living room. She could tell from the look on his face that something wasn't right, so she asked what had happened. He sat down and sighed. William couldn't lie to his family. He told them everything. Then he swore them all to complete secrecy. It's possible William really meant to keep the incident quiet after that conversation. But even if he'd never breathed a word about the crash, it was clear to the other townspeople he'd been through something transformative. From that point onward, he was more open-minded. When people told him incredible stories, he listened respectfully. He knew there was a big universe out there, and he let this knowledge guide him in his ministries. William wasn't the only person who was changed that night. Some, like the Reverend, seemed to blossom. The knowledge that there was something bigger out there made their lives better. But just as many people seemed lost in paranoia, the burden of their shared secret was heavy, and it was only a matter of time before someone punctured the veil of silence. Coming up, the Cape Girardeau cover-up. Now back to the story. A few weeks after the strange crash outside of Cape Girardeau, a local photographer named Walter Fisk privately approached Reverend William Huffman. He said he'd managed to smuggle something from the crash site, a single photograph. It's not clear exactly how Walter slipped the picture past the soldiers who secured the site, but we can make an educated guess. We know he snapped the image on his personal camera, then tucked the device into his pocket. We can assume the army officials were so focused on his news cameras, they completely missed the hidden one. The developed photo showed two men holding one of the dead bodies up by its armpits. Its unusually long arms were outstretched and slack. The whole body was limp, like it didn't have any bones at all. Its big black eyes, small slit-like mouth, and bald skin were clearly visible. Anyone could tell at a glance. The creature wasn't from Earth. Walter told William he was the only other witness who he could absolutely trust. He wanted the Reverend to hold a copy of the picture for safekeeping. They'd be the only two people in the world with actual proof. William accepted the photograph and swore to keep it a secret. But it was only a matter of time before he broke his promise. Occasionally, he'd allude to that night with his family. His children, and eventually grandchildren, heard brief references to the night when a plainclothes police officer hauled him off to a mysterious assignment, or vague allusions to an encounter of some sort with an alien in the spring of 1941. But he didn't tell them the full story, nor did he bring it up with friends or acquaintances. Still, whispers about saucers and mysterious crashes lived on in the Huffman household, 
even after they moved from Cape Girardeau three years after the crash in 1944. The hints were enough to spark curiosity in William's granddaughter, Charlotte Mann. She claimed that on several occasions, her father would reach into his wallet and withdraw something that convinced her these stories were real, a photograph. It showed two men holding up a four-foot-tall gray alien. The same photograph the reporter gave William a few weeks after the crash. The image was striking. The dead creature clearly wasn't human. Its arms were unnaturally long, its nose and mouth far too small, and it only had three fingers. But even with the photographic evidence, Charlotte didn't know the whole story. Her parents hinted at some kind of wreck featuring aliens and a UFO. But she never heard any more than that, not even how her grandfather was involved. She was running out of time to get the full truth. William died in 1959, and with him, any secrets he hadn't shared yet. Both his sons, who heard the truth from him, had passed away by 1974. Her grandmother, Floyd, was the only person who knew the whole story, and by 1984, she was dying of cancer. In her final days, Charlotte pleaded with her to share what happened that night. Finally, Floyd relented. She told Charlotte everything. At last, Charlotte understood the story behind the strange family secret and the mysterious photograph. Several years later, in 1991, Charlotte wrote a letter to a UFO researcher detailing everything her grandmother had told her. That ufologist shared her account with an author who published her story in his next book. Eventually, another ufologist named Ryan Wood read Charlotte's narrative. Wood wanted to interview her for his own research, and Charlotte was more than game. In the early 1990s, they traveled to Washington, D.C. together to see if they could find any physical evidence. Now, they knew no federal agency would admit to covering up an alien crash landing, so they didn't inquire directly about the Cape Girardeau incident. Instead, they went to the National Archives in Washington, hoping to find something that proved a UFO went down in the region in 1941. Charlotte poured through pages of crash logs, operation paperwork, and obscure government reports. Then, she uncovered a declassified document. It referred to a retrieval mission outside of Cape Girardeau in 1941. It's unclear if the document said much more than that. But the fact that the military collected something in the right place and time was enough for Charlotte. As far as she was concerned, her grandfather was right. Their family secret was true. Unfortunately, there still isn't much conclusive evidence available to the public. Even if the crash was real, that doesn't mean it was an alien ship. The only solid physical evidence is the photograph of the men holding up the alien. As we mentioned earlier, William passed the picture on to his son, who showed it to Charlotte. However, according to Charlotte, her grandfather loaned the photo to a friend at some point, and it was never returned. No one has seen it for years. For all we know, it might not even exist. 
Still, her scant discoveries sparked speculation and excitement back home. Before long, Cape Girardeau and nearby towns like Sykeston had their own local lore about an old, mysterious crash. Eventually, they made their way to authors like Paul Blake Smith, who wrote MO41, The Bombshell Before Roswell, our main source in this episode. But the books and the rumors weren't what got Sykeston native Linda Wallace excited about the Cape Girardeau incident. She stumbled on the story by accident. Sometime in the 2000s, Linda was working on genealogical research to learn more about her family history. Around the same time, she came across a presentation by ufologist Ryan Wood. She was shocked by his findings. He cited several local people as witnesses or first responders at the crash. And she recognized the names. They were relatives. Unlike the Huffman family, Linda had never heard a word about the Cape Girardeau incident from her parents or other family members. But still, she was hooked on the mystery. From that point onward, she wanted to learn everything she could about the crash. She dove into local fire, police, and sheriff department records. But they were missing all the reports for the entirety of 1941. Like someone had deleted them. Next, she turned to digital copies of an old local newspaper, the Sykeston Herald. She pulled up various issues from the spring of 1941. And while she didn't see any mention of the crash, she once more found evidence that something had been censored. Whole articles had been cut out of the microfilm or blacked out. Maybe this was the sign Linda was looking for. Someone was hiding the truth. The discovery was a blessing and a curse. Linda couldn't uncover the evidence she needed, but its conspicuous absence was a sign that she was on the right trail. She began driving around, surveying farmhouses, parks, and expansive empty fields. She never found any trace of the wreckage. But soon Linda's luck started to turn. One witness said they knew rumors of what they called little people who perished in an airplane crash. They claimed they'd heard someone came and collected the bodies, but it's hard to determine if they knew any more than that. Another woman said her father helped move the debris. He and a few other strong men hoisted alien metal onto a flatbed truck. Although the wreckage seemed big and sturdy, it was strangely lightweight. Numerous sources referenced the same friend, we'll call him John, who was actually at the scene. According to them, he worked at the Missouri Institute of Aeronautics. His friends said John often spoke of an incident from years ago. Apparently, he had to fly to an airbase near Sykeston to retrieve some kind of small bodies. He later described the corpses to his friends as visibly not human. Sounds a lot like John helped cover up the Cape Girardeau flying saucer wreck. Of course, Linda couldn't rely on second- or third-hand accounts of John's experiences. She tracked him down and asked to interview him. It seems she didn't tell him what the conversation would be about. This proved to be a mistake. When they first met, he spoke openly about his life. 
But when Linda brought up the Cape Girardeau incident, he fell silent and ended the interview then and there. Linda never got the chance to book a follow-up. John died soon after their meeting. And since she didn't have hard evidence or John's testimony, the trail went cold. Even though she didn't solve the mystery, she made a lot of headway. So in October 2013, Linda compiled everything she'd found and released it as an ebook on Amazon. This was a big deal. It gathered all the Cape Girardeau evidence together in one place. It helped put the incident on the ufologist map, revealing to the world that something suspicious happened there in 1941. Even though Linda didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle, she shone a spotlight on the mystery. Other investigators followed in her steps, and before long, they realized there was other evidence that corroborated the tales of the Cape Girardeau crash. Including something that's allegedly located right under one of the most iconic buildings in the United States. Coming up, the secret hidden under the Capitol. Now, back to the story. At some point before the U.S. entered World War II, Pastor Turner H. Holt traveled to Washington, D.C., and he saw something that changed his life. For years, he kept the details of that tip secret, then, as an old man, he finally told his daughters what he'd seen that day. According to his daughters, Pastor Holt traveled to the American Capitol to meet his cousin, Secretary of State Cordell Hall. He didn't remember the exact date, but it was sometime during Hall's tenure, which lasted from 1933 to 1944. Hull brought Holt to the Capitol building, but before they stepped inside, Hull swore the pastor to complete secrecy. The clergyman agreed, and Hull let him in. They trekked down into the basement, and then even further into the sub-basement. As they trudged down the long, dark hallway, the pastor asked where they were going. Secretary Hull didn't answer. He simply opened a door, flipped on a light switch, and entered a mysterious room. Countless crates lay open, filled with tiny pieces of jagged metal. Larger pieces of the same metallic material lay toward the back of the room. There was something huge in the storage space. Holt couldn't make it out because it was covered with a sheet. He also noted three large transparent glass containers. He described them to his daughters as jugs or jars. It sounds like a lot to take in and Holt wasn't even sure what he was looking at. He asked his cousin, and the politician said the room contained physical evidence of extraterrestrial life. When the secretary invited him to try lifting some of the debris, Pastor Holt put his hands under the disc and pulled with all his strength. The metal rose off the floor with ease. It was surprisingly lightweight. He put the piece down and wandered around. When he lifted the tarp atop the giant object, he found a partially wrecked flying saucer underneath. He was in for an even bigger shock when he examined the glass containers. Up close, 
he could see they held small, shriveled gray bodies, creatures from another world. According to one of Holt's daughters, he saw three glass jars. Perhaps these were the same three bodies recovered at Cape Girardeau. Maybe the government flew the alien corpses right to Washington, D.C. and buried them in the depths of the Capitol building, forever hidden from the public. It might be difficult to believe that there are alien bodies hidden under our nation's capital. But we don't have to rely on Holt's testimony alone. Decades after the incident, researcher and ufologist Ryan Wood discovered evidence that pointed to an alien landing at Cape Girardeau. Presidential memos. In 1994, an anonymous source leaked some classified government documents about encounters with celestial objects. Since then, two other unnamed sources released more information. These leaks included 1942 memos from the desk of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In one letter, FDR described a new material in the Army's possession. He said it could be of, quote, great significance toward the development of a superweapon of war. Another top-secret memo, dated just a week after the first one, mentioned the creation of the Interplanetary Phenomena Unit, or IPU. We don't know much about this group, but the same memo talks about retrieving wreckage from two downed flying saucers. Reading between the lines, it seems the IPU was responsible for salvaging technology from crashed alien craft. Perhaps the most damning memo came from September 24, 1947. This presidential briefing described several recent UFO crashes, including one in Missouri in 1941. It said the wreckage featured technology that was far more advanced than anything U.S. or German engineers could have made at the time. Now, it's not clear if any of these memos are authentic. They featured typos and misspellings, which you wouldn't expect in official government correspondence. To make matters worse, the leak was purportedly a copy of the original document. So even if we could get our hands on the page and run tests, it would be almost impossible to verify it. However, Wood believes they're the real deal. He claims the formatting, file numbering system, and language quirks are all consistent with authentic documents. That said, even he acknowledges they could be a hoax. So despite Wood's investigation and Linda's research, it seems like the truth about Cape Girardeau may never be known, even though countless people are demanding answers. Every year, citizens push the American government to declassify information about countless UFO sightings, including the one in Cape Girardeau. Maybe one day, they'll share what they know. In the meantime, all we can do is wonder if a grain of truth lives on in local rumor, speculation, and in old family secrets. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Tuesday with another episode. 
For more information on Cape Girardeau, amongst the many sources we used, we found Paul Blake Smith's book, MO41, The Bombshell Before Roswell, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Alex Bernard, edited by Natalie Pritsovsky and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, recorded by Alex Button, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Anthony Valsic. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Richard Rossner. <laughs>